it was fun this morning. Um, Airly was at church this morning with Matt and Meredith, and um, and Ruth was as well with her parents, Matt and Megan. And then uh, we got to announce a, a, a baby shower for Zach and Emily uh, coming up, hosted by the women of the church. And it was also really fun because I got to share that Wally and Jessica Smith are also expecting in March. So, I don't, you know, there's just going to be babies all over the place. Uh, I told so. Wally he needed a little girl. <laughs> Edwin is pulling for a girl. Yeah. Uh, what a blessing. Yeah, just a, a tremendous blessing. So I encourage you to continue uh, praying for all those folks and those children and their parents uh, and also the parents-to-be. Um, our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians uh, in chapter 1, picking up with verse 15, read verses 15 through 20, one, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I invite you to listen carefully and listen well, for this too is the word of the Lord. Uh, it's speaking about the preeminence of Christ. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there are two, two um, things in that, themes in that passage I'd like to highlight at the beginning, and we'll get to them in a moment. The first of them comes in the first line in Colossians 1.15. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image in Greek is icon, which is the word for icon. You might notice there's a few of them up here this morning. That word icon just means image. It means picture. We're going to talk about a few of those. Uh, and secondly, I wanted to note, again, we've talked about, uh, we've been praying this prayer to the Holy Spirit, um, who is everywhere and fills all things, treasury of goodness and giver of life. Come and abide in us. Cleanse us from every stain. Save our souls, O good one. That similar language is used. The Spirit. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, we learn that in Jesus, everything was created through Him and for Him. He was before all things. In Him, all things hold together. All that has existence, all that has being, you and me and everything you can touch, everything earthly, but also everything heavenly that doesn't have body, or materiality, 
created through Him, by Him, for Him. Jesus is the one in whom all things hold together. He is the logos, um, the, the ground um, of creation, the one that sustains it all. And so I, I want us to have that too in the back of our minds because we've been in the larger frame talking about in this series of sermons um, trying to understand how we can learn to see more fully that truth that all things hold together in Christ, that the Holy Spirit is everywhere and fills all things. How can we have eyes to see the glory of God in the world around us, the transfiguring light of Christ as it shines upon the created world, upon human beings, upon the church, within your own heart? How can you learn to see Christ everywhere and the Holy Spirit filling all things? Um, we've wanted to do that because we're invited to that reality, uh, especially through Luke's gospel. You know, the central, um, the, the beginning of the gospel is Christ's birth. The end of the gospel is his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. The exact center of the gospel of Luke is this section. And at the center, this framed by two stories, uh, the beginning of the end of the middle section talks about Jesus giving sight to those who were blind. And then in the middle of that middle section, there's the story of the account of the transfiguration, where Jesus leads Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain, and they see him as he is, the glory of Christ shining forth, his, his face like the sun, his garments gleaming white. And then, after this vision is over, this epiphany experience, they go back down the mountain into the world on the way to the cross, able to see a bit differently the presence of Christ, the glory of Christ, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of worldly opposition, the glory of Christ is there to be found. So that's, that's our goal. We've approached it by a few different ways. We've talked about holiness, holy places, thinking about the, ta the tabernacle and the temple in Exodus. We've talked about uh, holy things, what God uh, instructed to be fill, to fill the holy tabernacle with the items, the altars, the holy of holies, um, the, the uh, mercy seat, and so forth. Um, we've talked about holy people because within that holy place, filled with holy things, God also set priests who were clad in particular clothing. Um, that's been one avenue. When you come to church, a holy place, your imagination is being transformed little by little, I think you catch glimpses of things here that transform your sight when you go out there beyond these walls. Holy places, holy things, holy people can begin to give you a greater insight, a greater ability to see the glory of Christ in the world. Secondly, we talk, we've talked about ritual. We talked about making the sign of the cross. Uh, we talked about doing that in the morning and the evening. First thing when you wake up in the morning, make the sign of the cross. Last thing at the close of day before you fall asleep, make the sign of the cross. Uh, morning and evening sacrifices were offered in the temple. And this is a way that we can participate in that ritualistic action. Uh, you know, we've talked about the, for those who perhaps hadn't heard that before, we talked about um, making the sign of the cross typically being something we associate with the Roman Catholic or in this instance, maybe the Eastern Orthodox Church and not for Protestants. But the reformers themselves recommended that when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you should do is make the sign of the cross on your body and say the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We just sort of stop doing that. Um, so maybe it's something to take up, morning and evening. And then also 
the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. These rituals can begin to shape your day in a particular way. Again, that allows you to see things you may not have seen otherwise. And then we came to beauty last week. Beauty. Holiness, ritual, and now thinking about beauty. Beauty um, as something that works out the pattern of love in our lives. And Hans Urs von Balthasar uh, gave us this framework where we see that initial encounter with something beautiful akin to eros, which is a Greek word for love that has connotations of desire. When you see something beautiful, you stop, you move towards it. It gets your attention. You want to gaze upon it more fully or think about it more completely. You look at that thing. You're drawn to it in love. It's that appetitive aspect of your soul that desires to take something into yourself. Now, if you stop there, all manner of, of you know, sinful behavior could ensue, right? But that's why we don't want to short-circuit the process. If you are drawn to something in love it, that's beautiful, it ought to then shift your attention up to the beauty of God whose beauty is reflected in this thing that you see. We talked about the James Webb telescope and the galaxy spinning around that we can see in the heavens now through this incredible uh, technological advancement with clarity beyond you know, anything we've seen yet. And it's staggering, drawn to look at the heavens. But we shouldn't stop there. We should also allow this to uh, draw us into a contemplation of the God who's made all things and the beauty of that one whose beauty is reflected in the created world. When you see something beautiful, for a moment, it makes you forget yourself. There's an ecstatic or a movement out of yourself that happens. And so you forget you for a moment, and you're just drawn to the beautiful scene in front of you. And that opens up a window, a door that allows you to then act with agape, which is self-sacrificial love. It makes you want to live differently. You see, do you remember the, um, uh, the poem from Wendell, Be Wendell Berry, the yellow-throated thro warbler? The bird came down and lit right upon his porch railing, and he says it was beautiful beyond any picture that could be taken of it. It was beautiful beyond anything that, that even the most skilled taxidermist could have done to this bird if it was killed and then tried to be preserved. It was beautiful, even more beautiful than what our limited minds could remember. This beautiful bird alive in the only moment of its life, he said when he saw it, it made his mind beautiful. So when you encounter beauty, it's transforming you as this process of love is worked out so that then you can be beautiful. And you can be someone that when another person encounters in the world, they might also be called to contemplate God and to act in self-sacrificial love themselves. That's the basic movement of beauty. For the next few weeks, we're going to talk about beautiful images, beautiful words, and then uh, after homecoming, we'll talk about beautiful actions. So again, trying to learn to see the glory of Christ. Holiness offers up a possibility for that. Ritual offers up a possibility for that. Beauty as well. Um, so our passage this morning starts with Jesus being the image or the icon of God. Um, I've got for you uh, an insert, which I'd invite you to, to take out. And I'm very sorry that I'm talking about beauty and I've got this black and white 
ink blob of an image in front of you to look at. Um, but in each of these respects, there's also a, an icon up front that you are more than welcome to come and look at at the conclusion of the service, and I invite you to do that. Um, yeah, so if, at the very top um, of this page, you'll see probably the Mary and Christ are probably the easy one to notice. If you look at the top image on that side of the page, um, you'll see that it says Saints Peter and Paul in Boone, North Carolina. A few months ago, I went over uh, to this church, which um, has now moved to West Jefferson. They purchased a, a former Roman Catholic building, and they're in the process of reconstructing it. In fact, they're redoing and creating an iconostasis full of icons right now. And I went over to the church. It was in a storefront on the bypass near the Coca-Cola factory or distribution center, if you know where that is, and uh, attended a service midweek. And when you walk in, this is what you see in the front. And this image at the top is actually taken from their Easter service. And, you know, it's a storefront. It's uh, uh, not particularly beautiful. It's a strip mall kind of storefront, uh, fairly utilitarian. And you walk in, and then you look at the, at the front of the church, and the, I don't know if you can tell, but there are flowers adorning the entire front wall. Um, there are flowers around the icons. It's Easter Sunday. So we have lilies in the church, usually a few, um, and they have the entire church full of white flowers. Like, I mean, you can hardly walk. It's so full of flowers. Um, it's a sense in which Eden has returned. Paradise has been reopened, right? And so when you walk forward, this, uh, you can see some pedestals similar to the ones we have here, and there are icons upon those pedestals. In the center, there's an icon of the resurrection, of Christ uh, standing on the gates of hell and pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave because he has conquered death. Um, but I want to talk about the ones that are to the right and to the left of, um, of those doors which are behind the center, center pedestal. And um, so the first of them, you can see right here, uh, it is the icon of, of Mary and Jesus. Uh, it's the icon which recognizes Christ's first coming in the Incarnation. This one was given to me by John and Gail Patterson. They got it in Eastern Europe on a trip a few years ago. And uh, so I appreciate that very much. I keep it in my study. And so you can see it down, down below. It's not an exact, these two aren't exactly the same. The one on your handout is a mosaic. So it's made up of tiny stones, um, which uh, fit together and create this image. Um, if you look at the top of the image, in the top left corner and the top right corner, there's some letters. You can maybe uh, perceive them. Um, Mu and Ro are at the top left, and then um, that's, that stands, that's the first and last letter of the, of the word mater, which is the word in Greek for mother. And then on the right side is uh, theos, first and last letters of theos, which is the word for God, mater theos. So here, uh, the mother of God is at the top of this um, in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they call Mary the Theotokos, which means God-bearer. Uh, this is not to say, they would be very clear, this is not to say uh, Mary's the mother of the Trinity. No, that would be heretical. Mary is rather the mother of God incarnate, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God made flesh dwelling among us. And you can tell that fairly obviously because in her 
lap, in her arms, is uh, uh, Jesus, an image of Christ. Um, in the Eastern Church, well, I say in the Roman Catholic Church, there's often uh, Mary by herself, depictions of Mary in different ways. But in the Eastern Church, Mary's never by herself, but always with Christ, which is an interesting difference, isn't it? Um, if you look uh, to the right side of that image, there are some letters there, um, uh, first and last letters of Jesus and Christus. So Jesus Christ is there. And then if you look in the halo around uh, Christ's head, you can see three letters. And uh, those mean um, he who is. Ha and then own, he who is. And d- does that sound like I am who I am? Yeah. yeah. So he who is. This is, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who's revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as I am who I am. This is him incarnate. Uh, this image sort of brings together, as we made the sign of the cross, the Trinity in these three, the dual natures of Christ here in, the, in these two fingers held down, the womb of Mary uh, and the incarnation here, man and woman together. You can see even in this icon, man and woman together joined by Christ and his incarnation to the life of God. Um, this is that aspect where we go, uh, Christ is the eternal word of God and the beloved Son of God who has come down to earth, even the womb of Mary, right? Even into the tomb. Uh, even into the, He has come down to us. And so in the church, this icon is always over here on this left side. If you walk into the church, if you look up at the front uh, picture here, you can see how it is on the left side. Um, uh, a couple other things to notice in this image. Um, first of all, that Jesus, though he is the size of an infant, like looks strangely adult-like in his features. It's not just a bad drawing. Uh, it's meant to, to identify Jesus uh, not just as a babe, but as the Lord. Um, uh, you will see, in, and this is very important, this is a big theme, uh, Jesus, right, in Colossians, is the icon of God. He's the image of the invisible God. Um, when icons are drawn or written, they are not meant to be realistic representations of what a person looks like. They are meant to capture symbolically um, the identification of this person as they participate in God's kingdom. So, if there are other saints that are in icons, it is meant to show their, their holy qualities, their beautiful qualities. And this is where it connects to our theme of beauty and beautiful images transforming our sight. When you look at an icon, you're not invited to see the, the person per se or the strictly the image, but those aspects of the person when read symbolically that can begin to shape your imagination, to shape your life. It looks very strangely like Mary is looking at you if you look at it. Her eyes are looking at you in this picture. And so as she gazes upon you, her hands, one holds Christ closely, preciously. Uh, Here's the Lord of heaven and earth. She desires to be close to him. But the other hand is sort of like this, offering him to you as she looks upon you. Here he is. Here is the one who is. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, the ruler of the universe offered to you. Here is the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's now become incarnate 
through the Son, joined to our humanity. Here he is. Will you receive him? It's always on the left side. It's an image that can, it's beautiful, it draws you in, but is meant to be understood in light of the kingdom, in light of the light of God shed upon it. Now, on the other side, uh, you can see back on the image of the church, um, directly across the doors from where Mary is, there's an image of Jesus. Uh, it is this one. Um, Jesus Pontecrater is the name of that icon. You can see them um, depicted differently uh, in different times. Pontecrater means all-powerful one or the almighty. And <clears throat> uh, around his halo, also on your image, you can see the faded out letters, perhaps, that also say, he who is. Um, this image comes from a monastery in Sinai uh, called St. Catherine's. It's the oldest icon iconographic representation of this Jesus Pontecrater icon that is known in the world. It comes from the 6th century. Uh, let's look at it for a moment. You can see the, holy, the, the halo around Christ. Um, you can see um, the, those letters that dictate uh, the name he who is. Um, also very obvious is that Christ is holding a book uh, with a cross on it and that he's extending a hand. Um, this icon brings together all manner of different themes symbolically. Uh, on the left side, you can see Christ's left, rather. He's holding this book. This at once is, is both the book of judgment. It's the book of life wrote, written of in Revelation. It is also the gospel. It is the book uh, with which Christ comes in judgment. Because just as this image with Mary is meant to indicate uh, Christ's first appearance on the earth, Jesus Pontecrater is meant to um, speak of Christ in his return. So making the sign of the cross, it's this part. It's his lordship and his coming again. When Christ comes again, he shall come in glory and he shall also come in judgment. And so this book represents his judgment. Also, you'll notice that that side of his face is just a little different in the image. His brow is raised just a bit. Um, there's, there's perhaps a sternness to his vantage or, or his visage rather on that side it's a bit rougher um, it represents his judgment on the other hand the right side of his face is is calmer it's more serene it's gentler it is meant to recognize and to represent his mercy also with his hand he's he's uh, stretching out the sign of blessing and if you've been doing the three fingers of the Trinity and the two of Christ's incarnation, you can probably guess what his three fingers together with uh, the two fingers raised happen to be. This is what I do at the end of the service. This one uh, represents Christ's divinity. The one that's bowed down to earth represents his humanity and the Trinity here. Uh, so that's the, the sign of blessing traditionally. And so when you look upon this image, you can see that in Jesus, God's um, righteousness and his mercy are held together perfectly in one person. In Jesus, you have both aspects of who God is present. Um, this is Christ's return. And so when you look at these two pictures, um, uh, they are meant to gather you up. You're attracted by perhaps the beauty of the image or perhaps the light of the kingdom inherent to them that you can see. Uh, but they're, they're meant to cause you to contemplate God just as beauty does, to think about who God is and what God has done. And this, in turn, opens you and takes you outside of yourself. You're no longer God, but God is, so you're taken outside of yourself, and it frees you to act in ways 
akin to Christ. Ways of blessing, ways of sharing, ways of love, ways of self-sacrifice, of agape. Um, it's also noteworthy that on either side, uh, these, these icons are always on either side of the doors. I mentioned this before, where if you go in the doors, there's the altar where they have the communion elements. Um, this is Christ's first coming. This is Christ's second coming. We live in between those two moments within time. You live in between those two moments in time. And how and where the location is that we encounter Christ's grace, his mercy, his person, is at the table. Um, now, if you turn this uh, page over, you can see that, that last image, which typically hangs just outside our sanctuary. It's over here um, on this side of the church. And this is a very famous icon. Uh, it is the visitation of Abraham. It depicts three angels who have come to visit Abraham under the oak of Mamre. You can see at the very top, there's a tree kind of hanging up over top. That's the oak tree of Mamre. Uh, Abraham is visited by these three guests. And um, uh, in, the, in, in the iconographic tradition, you, you do not depict God the Father or the Trinity. It's impossible. We read it just a minute ago. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we can't see God. God is a spirit. Um, so that's not a depiction of the Trinity. But there are aspects to each of these figures which, when you encounter beauty, raises you up to think of God in three persons. And so if you look at the person on the left, the angel on the left, um, you can see it better in this picture up here, perhaps at the front. Uh, the garments of this angel are almost translucent. You can almost see through it. It's really neat how they've done that. Uh, the artist did that. But... You can almost see through the garments. The invisible God is, so the invisible creator is in some way symbolized by this one. The person in the center of the image uh, is typically understood as Christ. He is wearing both red and blue, symbolizing both his divinity and his humanity. And on the table, he has two fingers extending down. Again, same theme. If you look to the image on the right, this is traditionally understood to, to aid you in your contemplation of the Holy Spirit because the blue garment representing divinity is also combined with this green garment which represents water. The Holy Spirit hovered over the water through creation. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus in his baptism. The Holy Spirit uh, comes upon us and fills us at our baptism. So the association with water is strong throughout. Um, so here, uh, in this image, you have three figures who are meant to cause you as you contemplate God and God's glory revealed in the creation to think about who God is. Now, one other thing you'll notice is that they're sitting around a table, and at the center of the table there is a cup full of wine. wonder what that represents. Right, so communion here. Um, and also, indicating the participative element uh, inherent to icons is the idea that when you look at that image, it's like there's a seat still at that table that opens up for you. There's a space empty. And communion being the place where you are invited to come and to participate in the life of God, to come and participate in the life of the Trinity as Christ, in the power of the Spirit, gives his body and bread and his blood in the cup. Um, it's another way of saying this right here, where you have Christ's first coming and his final one and the way in which we're invited to share in his life presently now. 
I want you to think just a second about how many pictures you see a day. How many images you look upon every single day. If you have a phone and you spend eight hours on average like most Americans do on their phone a day, like you know how many pictures you look at in a given day? And they're all worldly pictures, mostly, right? He, and, and you see how formative they are in our imaginations. That's what memes are. They're pictures that contain information that shape your behavior. That's why advertisers use them. Here in the church, there's also the possibility of encountering beautiful images that contain symbolically understand, knowledge, information that will change you, that will transform who you are so that you behave differently in the world. And just as an example of that, I wonder if when we come to the table this morning, just by virtue of having thought about these particular images, you might come a little differently today. Because you live in between these two moments. And this is where you receive Christ. And where you're joined to His life. This is where the most important thing in your life actually happens. Just my hope is as we encounter and maybe think about beautiful images that we might be drawn further into the life of God and be able to see God's life more fully around us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.